I went there at the time that there was triple occupancy in the residence halls when I was living there. There was quadruple occupancy until people dropped out. They were hoping for people to drop out to fill beds. So I think the tertiary schools, the secondary schools, I think the flagships are probably gonna be fine. Welcome to the Student Housing Insight Podcast, where we put you in touch with the people who bring student housing to life. I'm your host, Wesley Dees. I'm also the CEO and founder of Student Housing Insight. That's right, Student Housing Insight. It's not just a podcast. Rather, it is a platform for industry professionals to network, share data, and develop best practices for operating student housing facilities. If you want to learn more, please go to studenthousinginsight.com. We also produce the industry's monthly webinar focused on student housing operations. It's called Shop Talk, and it's led by a committee of C-suite and executive level veterans, so the content is always timely and relevant. You can register for the monthly webinar and review past webinars by visiting shoptalk.info. Again, that's shoptalk.info. So how was your summer turn? Did everyone on the team survive? How about your family? (laughs) Did your spouse pack up and leave? Did your children remember your name when you got back? (laughs) I hope you didn't have to deal with any of that, but I've been there. And uh, fortunately, my wife never left me. Um, In fact, I was really fortunate that early in my student housing career and my marriage that I worked for a small family owned business. And in a lot of ways, myself and my wife were, we were really treated like extended family. So when turn came around each year, or if we were delivering a new development, it was really a family affair. I reported directly to the president of the company. And so, you know, his wife would typically help out as well. We would fly or drive wherever we were needed. And my wife would typically help out as a, as a temp employee. I'm really, really thankful for that because she got to see firsthand what turn was like and how crazy moving can be. So by the time we started having kids, she just, made plans to go spend two or three weeks with family, you know, just kind of disconnect from whatever we were doing in August or typically doing in August. She would just kind of go do her own thing with the kids and with our family. And I think that really helped out in a lot of ways, but she knew how crazy, how crazy it could be during turn. And she just supported me through it mainly by just showing a lot of grace and if you've been in this industry long enough as a um, as a couple with a, with a partner or a spouse I'm sure you know what I mean by that <laughs> it's a bit like being a military wife I suppose although at, at most I think I spent maybe a month away and not some type of nine-month 12-month deployment but I hope you have been able to allow your family to be part of the summer turn process, not only so that they can get some insight into what's happening in your work life, but also so you know that your team is able to see how things are impacting you know your family at home. I think that's really important. By now, I would say that your residents should be moved in and fall semester should be in full swing. We've got a lot of content that we've been working on for this fall, and I can't, I really can't wait to share it with you. But for today's episode, I wanted to talk a little bit about uh, our on campus colleagues. Uh, Right before turn started, I, I got a chance to moderate a panel at a conference, and I wanted to share that discussion with you. It was actually College Pads Off Campus Summit. If you don't know anything about College Pads, they are a, an ILS or an internet listing service that works with universities to provide an off-campus housing website to help students connect with off-campus properties as well as landlords that are local to the area. Their annual uh, summit, it's actually, it's not for off-campus housing providers. It's actually for their university clients. And it's a chance for those administrators who work within student services and auxiliary services for them to kind of come together and just share what they're experiencing on their campuses, things that are going on with their own staff and, of course, with their students as well and things that they're coming across. 
but college pads reached out to me in the spring and asked if I could put together a panel of off-campus housing providers to share perspectives from the off-campus side of things. Also, those that are involved with public-private partnerships. The panel um, that I was able to put together, and if they're out there listening, thank you so much for agreeing to do that because it was right in the middle of July and everybody had other things going on, but they came together for this panel. And I think all of us walked away with it. Very glad that we didn't put it off and say that we were busy. (laughs) So, But the panel certainly shared their perspectives on the current state of the industry and We've got a ton of feedback from those who were attending. There were a lot of questions about, well, I'll just say it, why in the hell do we think we can be raising rents so high? Which was a little bit ironic given the fact of how much higher education has gone up. But uh, anyway, I digress from that and uh, we'll put that to the side. But what I did hear in their feedback, I felt it would be really incredible insight for this podcast audience. And fortunately, I was able to take some recording equipment with me to get a halfway decent recording of the discussion. So I want to play that for you. The summit was held on the campus of Georgia Tech, and it was really kind of an intimate setting with about 50 or 60 attendees. So we got to have quite a few one-on-one discussions after our panel was done, and we got to kind of speak with everybody. I'm not going to get into introductions of the panelists because I have them introduce themselves but I will say there was over, it's certainly over 85 years. I would say it's probably closer to 92, 93 years of experience among four of the panelists, myself included. And we also had the chief operating officer for College House who was able to provide a ton of data for this audience to absorb regarding rates and leasing trends for the off-campus industry. And uh, it really came out well, I think we presented something that they're not hearing from you know folks that are in their own university community as far as their off-campus colleagues. It was great to see that and to hear some of their questions coming from that. So with no further ado, let's get into that conversation. We're going to kick off this next session with folks from the private sector. I've known Wes for a few years. We worked together on a couple podcasts, and he's been a great resource to me personally and professionally, just somebody to reach out to, ask questions of. So I approached Wes a while back and asked him if he would be interested in coming here to the summit and putting together a panel of some experts, just to focus a little bit on the private sector. So with that, I'll let everybody introduce themselves and turn it over to Wes. Thanks, Peter. And College Pass, thanks for putting this on. This has been fantastic. Yeah, I guess it was probably, I don't know, six weeks ago, Peter and Chris had reached out to me. For those that don't know, Student Housing Insight started out as a podcast that I started while I was doing some consulting. Still do the consulting and still do the podcast, and it'll be uh, six years next month, believe it or not. And um, I thought I'd probably make five episodes and you know, it would go away. <laughs> it was uh, amazing to see the folks on both the off-campus side and the on-campus side really kind of grab hold of what we were doing. And we've kind of used that platform as not only something to bring the off-campus industry together, but also to build bridges between on-campus and off-campus. So this is a perfect venue for something I like to, to be involved with. But I wanted to really kind of put a group together that could talk about things that were happening both from a data side of what's happened over the past three years from an off-campus standpoint because there's been a lot of changes there. Some folks that could talk about the operations and marketing and leasing as well as folks from the P3 side. I think we've got all of that represented here today. Uh, We do have one change. Charlie Matthews, who's the CEO and founder of College House, had a a, uh, death in his close friendship family that he had to go take care of that. So he sent his chief operating officer, Lenny, here, and um, I'll go ahead and let these guys introduce themselves. Lenny, we'll start with you. Yeah, nice to meet you all. My name is uh, Lenny or Leonard Bressler, CEO of College, or COO, excuse me, of College House. Um, yeah, I'm, 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 I'm reading this all day. Uh, I'm telling Charlie. 
Yeah, exactly. Give them love. No. Relatively new to the student housing space, been working in it for about a year, but previously led data analytics for Restaurant Brands International, so parent company of Burger King, Popeyes, Tim Hortons, Firehouse Subs. So very familiar with the real estate market as it relates to restaurants. I'm excited to talk to you about the uh, data as it relates to real estate and student housing today. Mark Miller. I'm a VP of operations with a small student housing company called Book and Ladder. We have 25 properties in 13 states. And I was going to say this year, I realized this the other day, this year marks 30 years since I started in student housing as a hall director. And I was paid $9,000 a year and I got a two bedroom apartment and a meal plan. So, hopefully we've come a long way from that, but great to be here. Um, my name is Chris Ann Kaiser, most people call me Casey. I have been in, or I've worked for Pierce for the last 16 years on the leasing and marketing side. I'm the VP of leasing and marketing now, and I started out years ago in the early 2000s at Central Michigan University as a RA on campus. So. And I'm Brad Shaw, and that is me, but I do <laughs> I'll be the first to admit, I'm with Graystar. I've been with Graystar EDR, it was acquired by Graystar five, uh, five years ago. But I've been with uh, Graystar for 20 years now, as my headshot was taken 20 years ago. <laughs> so we'll get, that, uh, we'll get that taken care of. And I work uh, in the third-party on-campus business line with Graystar. And I've got Mark B. My first job was $18,000 a year as a hall director. And the interesting thing is we, all three of us, worked together at some point in our careers. So it just goes to show how small. Wait, I said nine thousand. <laughs> yes, I got you beat. I, I mean, <laughs> oh yes, you did. You paid, you, they paid you a lot more than me. Wait, when I was an RA, I didn't get paid. Uh, <laughs> there's, there's, a, there's a reason for that. <laughs> I know. It was Central Michigan. And I'll just add, I was excited to see that there are five folks from campuses that we have P3s at. So uh, Penn, Mississippi State, Syracuse, and. Um, uh, what was the last one? Oh, Mississippi. Did I say Mississippi State? Penn, Mississippi State, Boise, and Syracuse. So glad to see you and thank you for your partnership. Well, great. Well, guys, I want to go back to, to Lenny and talk a little bit about what's happened from a data standpoint, both from a national and a regional standpoint in the off-campus world as it relates to both rental rates as well as occupancy. One thing that we have been experiencing, and you'll see it in some of Lenny's graphs, there used to be this thing where <laughs> we tried to make sure that everybody went home at Thanksgiving with rates and everything for renewing their lease for the next year so they could go home and talk to mom and dad about it. We're now sending out renewal notices before they move in. Mm -hmm. And a few of the markets, especially some of the Southeast Power Five markets have really just, and I'll kind of use UT Knoxville as, a, as an example because we saw kids that were camping out on the streets, waiting for the leasing office to open up in September to sign leases. And um, so it's it's not exactly what I was thinking would happen right after a pandemic, but do you need this link? Jumping right into it here. How is off-campus purpose-built student housing performed since the pandemic? So this is a pretty large report here. I'm gonna scan through this pretty quickly, but stop at some slides to kind of elaborate here really quickly. For those of you who don't know College House, we are a data aggregation and analytics platform focused on the off-campus student housing sector. In short, we're looking at occupancy, pre-lease rates, all the items that are important that y'all look at on a regular basis across 1.15 million beds across the student housing sector and provide insights as to not only how items are evolving, but why they're evolving. What are the key drivers in understanding why rates are going up or down, occupancy, pre-lease, et cetera. So along those lines, let's take a look at how pre-leasing has been performing relative to previous year benchmarks. So here we have kind of a regional chart kind of highlighting, uh, obviously we show the number of beds we're tracking the platform, but how pre-lease has been trending year over year. Across the board, as we all know, as we take a look at this report, was just recently from the end of June, as data updated through June 30th. It's been evolving and you know increasing obviously nationally about a percent. You can see higher growth in some of those, as we've already alluded to, power five markets, areas like the Southeast that have grown quite significantly year over year. And as we kind of continue to go through, you're gonna see that as an evolving trend where Folks, especially as we take a look at what evolved during the pandemic, you can go ahead and see that you have an increased evolution, especially on the folks that were a little bit more lenient, especially in the Southeast versus those that were potentially in the West as well as the Northeast. 
Going into occupancy performance, obviously, as Wes already alluded to, very strong occupancy kind of across the board here. This is obviously looking at what our current occupancy is. The previous slide was pre-released for the 2023-2024 academic year. I want to make sure I'm saying that correctly. And obviously, fantastic to see as the increased demand goes up, as well as there obviously being a uh, overall potential shortage on off-campus housing. We noticed that uh, as very little people are uh, moving into campus sooner and sooner, or moving into their, I should say, locking up their leases for the following academic year sooner and sooner, which is why we obviously have these, pre uh, these occupancies as well as pre-lease going higher and higher. Looking at rates, a lot of macroeconomic factors obviously affecting these as well as just general items. We've seen increases of late of international students coming in post-pandemic, which has helped obviously um, in the increases of rates. We see here um, overall average rate is, what is that, 901, 10.6% up year over year. We were just talking even before this that we're seeing this pretty consistently across all markets. We know as a whole that it is obviously having being more largely driven by those power five universities where you can see somewhere of upwards of 15 to 18% in certain cases. So a lot of growth there. Smaller growth in some of the other regions, you can see that up in the Northeast, you'll notice that their numbers are already higher driven by some of the student competitive properties that you're looking at in some of those larger markets up there, New York, Boston, et cetera. Jumping over to here, so this is broken out by the unit time, one, two, three, four bedroom, zero are our studios. You can see here, it's a pretty even distribution. You'll notice that it's pretty consistent regardless of what type of uh, unit you're looking at. You can see here, although there are some that are up or down relative to what the pre-lease year over year growth rate was, it's all within a percent or so. So nothing I would say overly significant for any type of unit at this moment, showing that it's pretty even distribution of growth across the board. So this is a chart I want to take a little more time to focus on. This is going to give us a better perspective as to what occurred over really the previous three years as it relates to pre-leasing. So something I want to go ahead and highlight is if you used to be able to target items like when you should be reaching 50% pre-lease, which is a common metric utilized throughout the industry, a couple of years ago, you wouldn't be hitting that until April, moving into, you know, obviously Q2 of the following year. Now we're seeing that in February, we only anticipate that's going to get sooner and sooner. We have a whole, you know, discussion a little bit later in this panel. We're going to talk about why folks are locking up their leases sooner and sooner, and we only anticipate this to continue. Another interesting trend that I want to go ahead and call out here is that, you know, some of the items as it relates to, you know, consistent growth across the board for October through September, obviously just kind of looking at this on an academic year basis versus fiscal years, you'll see here that it's been consistently growing regardless of the month you're looking at. So there isn't necessarily a time upon which that there isn't kind of a general spike. This is indicative of folks consistently leasing earlier throughout the year as a whole and an overall shift in the time frame upon which students are actually thinking about when they need to be leasing apartments in that following academic year versus it all potentially coming in at once, whatever. After exams, if we saw a big spike in January, that would potentially indicate folks are thinking about set a certain time, but it seems to be pretty consistent across the board, which is a good sign. It means that demand is consistently increasing throughout the year. Jumping through here, this is floor plan year over year pre-lease. Again, slight decreases in the six and the one, but all within a percent or so, so I wouldn't say anything significant. Also, these are generally folks where there's less tracked beds, as you can go see here by the 20,000 and 60,000 relative, respectively, respectively, I should say. So, and again, just across the board, regardless of unit, regardless of time of year, consistent growth, which are all important to call out. Year over year floor plan average rate, again, consistent growth across the board, like we talked about, rents have grown about 10.6% year over year on the national level. Fantastic, obviously, for increasing revenues and profitability across these businesses. And then, again, regardless of the floor plan details here, you're having consistent growth, which is a great to see. We can talk about this for a while, so I'm trying to quickly go through this. We have time for this panel, but um, we're going to talk a little bit more on development, especially as it relates to P3 here in a little while, but we're showing that there is consistent development. We already have quite a bit more planned for the 2025 uh, delivery year as we do 2024. So this should only continue to help with kind of the issues that we're seeing where hopefully we don't have folks camping outside of, or maybe we do want that, but folks in terms of businesses, but the cities uh, don't. Yeah, exactly. The cities don't. Uh, you know, in terms of driving profitability demand though, but anyway, increased uh, properties available and increased beds available, I should say. And as a result, we'll hopefully be able to mitigate some of that camping out and uh, you know, the demand that's available, in these, especially in these high-level markets. Lane, one other question. As you're looking at, at this pipeline, was there a specific region that kind of sticks out as receiving kind of the most development? I would say very, very heavy in the Southeast right now, as we've seen via not only increased growth rates, but I'm sure as you all saw during the kind of post-pandemic, this migration of folks, especially from the Northeast down to in areas around Florida, Georgia, you know, kind of where we're at now, heavy, heavy population growth driving the increased development in those areas. And that corresponds with what we're seeing on campus. Most of the growth for people on campus is in the Southeast and Northeast. So very, very consistent. 
If you guys need this report, I could probably send it out to Peter and he can get this to you. I want to move over to, to Brad and talk a little bit about P3s because one thing that you know we saw among some of our colleagues on the P3 side that when the pandemic happened, there was a lot of tense relationships, I guess is the best way of putting it, when the schools you know, decided to send folks home and, and close those residential buildings. And I think everybody weathered it well, but I'm kind of wondering now that we're three years past that, what's the appetite and what kind of financial strains has that changed up? And then kind of the second question of that is, has any of that changed the structure of how P3s are, are being developed now? Sure. All, all very good questions. I have a question for the group, though. Did anyone in the room attend the AQI conference last month in Portland? Okay, a few. Did you attend the Burrisford and Dunleavy presentation on the future of P3s by chance? Okay, good, because some of this information may be redundant because I'm borrowing <laughs> from that, uh, that presentation. <laughs> but if you don't attend, I'm sure that you had uh, groups of folks from your universities that were attending. It's a very good conference to get a handle on what's happening on campus, because as we know, what's happening on campus is going to impact what's happening off. So if a KUI is not on your radar, I, I would look into it. But like I said, I'm sure that there are folks from your individual institutions attending. So getting back to uh, Wes's question, and, and you are correct, Wes, the closing of on-campus projects and subsequent expectation that the partners refund housing charges during the pandemic really caused some tension and a lot of stress between the on-campus partners and the university. The major players in the space like Graystar and ACC took different approaches to how they were going to manage refunds and that really escalated the tension between universities and developers. As Wes said, I think the concerns have subsided, but one outcome that developers and management partners have worked into new agreements are protections, specifically guarantees on occupancy and uh, revenue. So that's something new that we didn't normally see when we were executing these agreements with university and college partners, but we're seeing more and more of that. So the impact that COVID has had on future growth is still kind of fleshing out and to be determined. What I can tell you is that in 2019, we saw that 26 public-private partnerships closed. In 2020, only seven closed. In 21, 21 closed. And then in 22, we had 13 projects closed. So the numbers aren't really giving us a clear understanding or picture as to the long-term impact. And I think the rebound in 21 was probably due to the fact that many of these projects were already in the pipeline, had already started, and the university rebounded quickly to get them fully executed. Interesting point that I discovered recently is we saw an increase in the number of projects at four-year private schools, more so and higher than four-year public schools. And as I said earlier, most of the growth is in the Southeast and Northeast. Interesting about the Northeast. Well, first of all, by a raise of hands, how many of you guys have P3 projects at your campuses? As far as how, you know, moving forward and talking about how those deals are now structured, is there anything different that is a must moving forward for yeah, a, a addition, private partner? In addition to the guarantees I talked about, there also seems to be a shift in what we call retained services. And those are the services that the university wants to keep versus having their partner be responsible for. Typically, residence life is being retained. Oftentimes, we'll see the application, leasing, contracting, processes retained, and then rent collection and uh, bad debt is oftentimes retained by the university as well. I think because of COVID, universities are looking to retain more control, which I think is okay and, and a good thing because if your partner's not about the student experience, regardless of what they're doing for you on campus, then you probably have the wrong partner. So if it means that retaining those services means that you're able to provide a level of service to students that you want, then it's okay to retain those and it makes sense. And we, we welcome that. So we're really seeing a shift in that where in the past, Graystar would do everything. And now we're basically facilities managers because the university or college wants to retain many of those services that touch students on a daily basis. Gotcha. And any roadblocks keeping bills from getting closed that you know yeah that's a great question so i think the number one is the higher cost of capital and getting these projects funded 
that's probably the biggest one. And then cost of construction, supply chain, and labor shortages are really having an impact on whether or not a project closes. Developers like Gray Star are being more strategic about the projects that we go after and the universities we partner with because of the increased risk. So that's really important too. And because we're looking for more guarantees, sometimes the university is not willing to do that. And so I think that ability to go out and cast a very wide net and look for potential partners is much smaller because of those restrictions or those expectations that the developers may have. And I don't think those are unique to Graystar. Another barrier is the projects are becoming more and more complex and bigger. So more beds and more components to the project. So there is retail, there is uh, university managed spaces, so classrooms. University of Kentucky, one of our largest projects, we have music studios and dance studios and dining, all those components and all those multiple stakeholders really complicate the project. And so they're almost becoming too complicated and that's why they're not working. One that I find really interesting is there's more political involvement and pressure. And um, some states are more P3 friendly than other states. And so we're finding in those states that aren't P3 friendly, it's almost impossible to get a deal done, even if the university wants to go that route. When you say friendly, are you talking about the approval process? Or are you talking about taxes? About laws and, and regulations about procurement, putting projects like this out to bid and how partners are selected. Many states have rules that, that sort of govern that process and really restrict how that can happen. And then lastly, I'll say, and this is more anecdotally, but from my perspective, and as I mentioned earlier, I focus on third-party on-campus deals. We seem to be seeing more projects and potential partnerships with universities where the university retains ownership or more so than not a 501c3 associated with the institution. And then they hire a company like Graystar to develop the project and then to manage it third party. So pre-COVID, we saw a majority of the deals had equity involved. So the partner would bring money to the table and own the improvements, typically on university land. We would pay ground rent and we would manage the, the project for the university. Those deals are still happening, but we see more deals where the university or its extension, again, the nonprofit corporation, or the 501c3 foundation want to retain ownership and have a third-party relationship. Gotcha. Since we're in the state of Georgia and we've got Mark, who was previously part of Corvius, I wanted to bring up what the Georgia system did several years ago of wanting to privatize all of it. I don't think it went very well from everyone that I've spoken to, but do you see that being something that state systems may end up pursuing in the future? or? Did everybody learn their lesson from? This is my opinion. Is <laughs> <laughs> so anybody recording or taking notes? I this know. is not Grayson's opinion. This is Brad Shaw's opinion. But I, I don't think so. I think the scope and complexity of that of the Georgia deal just made it almost impossible to be successful. And we we chased that deal. ACC chased that deal. I think any partner that would have won that deal would have faced an uphill battle. Yes, we were disappointed we didn't get it. But I think that the challenges that Corvius was faced just made it extremely difficult and then things changed. And I think COVID and the fact that the schools that were part of that group insisted on refunds, really, that's, that's what really kind of made it go downhill. And what that looks like, different companies did different things. There was no consistency across the board. It really did have a negative impact on future partnerships and universities are asking those questions now during the interview process. So that's a long way to answer to your question. I don't think something is complex and large. I think uh, systems will look at individual campuses and see if a P3 works for them and not maybe do the whole system. Yeah, yeah. I'm not aware of any in the future. I'm just- Yeah, so. I haven't, I haven't heard of any. Um, well, I wanna move on, kind of shifting from P3, but, but still talking about this relationship with the university and talk about master leases because I think over the past five years I've been involved with at least four probably closer to I start thinking about the ones I've advised on is probably closer to eight or nine and it seems like be it because of some type of mold issue on campus or UNR had a building that exploded actually two buildings um, <laughs> four weeks before school started back in I guess it was 2019 and so I've seen the universities reaching out more and more to 
not only hotels in the area, but also the off-campus providers. And we've got a, a couple of folks, Mark in particular, who has worked on several master leases. And I felt like you guys, it would be good to kind of hear from him what universities should keep in mind when approaching uh, master leases. And uh, with that being said, I'll kind of give that question over to you. Well, first, let me say everything was fine in Georgia when I left. <laughs> so I don't know what happened. You timed that just right. I think just a couple of points about master leases. Number one, utilize the tools that you have at your disposal or that you're required to use, right? So most of you are probably required to use an RFP process for a master lease. So don't be afraid when you're writing the RFP to write what you want. You're not restricted by anything for what you want. So if a private company doesn't want to meet your criteria, then they're not going to bid on it, right? So just make sure that you're getting what you want. And don't be afraid to negotiate after the fact, too. I think of one master lease in particular that, and we actually have one university that has master lease an entire building. It's 440 beds around there. And it has been an ongoing conversation about what they want, what we can provide, where we can meet in the middle. That's kind of a segue to my next point is you really have to find a partner in this with an off-campus private company. You have to find somebody who wants to work with you. It's not somebody that's just going to be, we'll give you the beds and you're paying for the beds and that's pretty much it. You want to have a, real, a good relationship with them. You want a company that wants to nurture and develop the relationship they have with you. And also one that's willing to think outside the box. We have one master lease actually in Chicago and it's with uh, an art school. They talked to us about putting art studios in the basement of the building and that's what we did. So catering, finding a partner that will work with you, that cares about the relationship, that is willing to be flexible and think outside the box with what you're doing, I think is super important. And also of the master leases that we have, there's a strong residence life component to it. So each one of our master leases, there is office space provided for the university, the college or university to use during the master lease. We also have live-in personnel from the university and you have to have that, obviously. In order for there to be some continuity with your residence life program on campus, you have to have that in your off-campus master lease. So to build on what Mark was saying about communication, I think it's really important to be proactive. And the, the great work that you all are doing to sort of bridge on-campus with your universities is critically important because you may not need a master lease now, but down the road you may find yourselves in a position to need yeah. one. And so if you already have good working relationships with the providers in the market, I think the better chances you are selecting a partner that's going to work well for you. So I think that keeping that communication open is really important and being proactive about it. The other thing I would say is master leases aren't always something that the developer operator is interested in because there could be issues with rate growth and revenue. And so the opinion that any developer would be would jump at the chance to master lease with the university is not necessarily accurate. And I share that because you may be surprised to learn that there may be communities in your at your universities that don't want to participate in a master lease, and that's why it's not always a good thing for the developer. Yeah, and I would say there's two types of master leases. There's the, the one that you see coming, you know, because of enrollment or, or, taking, or taking something off. Of, taking something offline, and then there's the one where you have an explosion on campus. Those really depend on the type of relationships you've, you've built you know, throughout the year with those local property managers. But I know it's tough you know, as a university administrator and housing directors to be able to know, what's, you know who the folks are off campus. And I would just say that's one great thing with CollegePad that a resource that they can be of telling you, hey, you know, these communities are obviously listed on the on the website and there's some somewhat of a loose affiliation there, but they're also the ones that can really kind of give you some of the behind the scenes of, hey, we know this manager's about to leave, so you probably don't want to <laughs> get something started there. 
So really lean on those guys to as a resource. As I was saying, with the emergency ones, if you guys are having, like the gentleman from Syracuse that spoke earlier, like if you're having those quarterly or those monthly or whatever types of meetings you're having with your partners in the community, you know who has the availability when a building goes down because there's this emergency and you have to get students out. Or, you know, during COVID, I know a lot of different private partners that partner with universities with some vacancy for students who weren't able to stay on campus or needed quarantine space or things like that. There were some partners for that. So if you have those relationships, you know who can help you and who's too full or who isn't going to partner with that because you've built those. So I think having those regular meetings is so beneficial because you just kind of get to know what's happening in your community. Well, the master lease isn't your only option. There's also a reservation agreement, yeah. which provides more flexibility for the university. So don't think that you just you can only do a master lease and you're on the hook for those beds and you have to pay for them whether or not you lease them. There are options and you just need to work with the developer that's willing to work with you to figure out what's best to meet your needs. I think one other quick thing I want to add is just remember it's not just housing. If you have partnerships or good communication or you know good relationships with your police department and IT I gave a tour for a master lease just recently, and I thought it was just going to be the real estate person that negotiated the master lease agreement. And it was like 15 people. <laughs> it was the police department. It was the fire department. It was IT. It was engineering. It was campus facilities. So all of those people are stakeholders in any kind of off-campus master lease you do. I guess the only other thing, just because I've been on both sides of the negotiation table with these master leases, do understand from the private side that they're looking at 12-month leases and 12-month income, and that's what that rent installment is based off of. And so when the university comes forward with something that is 10 months, well, yeah, there are some things that, that may cut some of the expenses down for that for that apartment community because you know that now they've got a longer term that type of thing but they cannot see it as basically a 16 percent loss in rent you know if you're looking at well, here's the monthly rent i'm giving you all of these these residents and you know you're not going to have to go collect from them if they don't don't pay their rent that type of thing the bank is not because they've got a lender that they've got to, to answer to and the lender is not going to they will put them in default if they were to sign something like that. So, I want to move over to talking about housing fairs a little bit on the marketing side. And we had a conversation in our um, preliminary call about this. And as we're talking about going back to the data that Lenny was presenting, how fast everything is happening with these lease up cycles now, having a housing fair in March doesn't make any sense anymore. And so we wanted to talk a little bit about uh, just approaching that with your off-campus providers, what can kind of work for everybody and specifically for the students. So Casey, with that being said, let's talk about timing. So how many of you guys help with your campus's housing fair or have one? If you don't, please do. I'm begging you for all your <laughs> private partners in the market. I, it is so beneficial for the students. Um, so it used to be almost all of them, I think when I started 15, 16 years ago, were in the spring. March housing fairs were, were it. it. I mean, you might have two a year, but if you had one, it was in the spring. Now, most of the markets, and Brad and Mark can probably speak to this even more, there's properties that are full by Christmas break. There is some markets where the majority of the market is full. And if you're not having your housing fair in the first semester, those properties aren't gonna get a benefit from it. And your students are going to be left looking for options. I know right now in Athens, Georgia, we're getting 50, 60 calls a day for people looking for housing. And there is very, very little left in that market. And the students are mad and the parents are like, well, I was always told to wait until after spring break or wait until this or the parents groups I'm in on Facebook say, I am so glad. Wait, wait, wait. You just made my day. Parents groups, I feel like need a moderator. I don't know how to get in, but, but the advice that's out there is outdated. Pre-COVID, yes, you could wait to sign a lease until spring and maybe you'd miss out on one or two options, but you still had a plethora of places to live. Now, if you're waiting until after spring break to sign the lease, you're very lucky if you're going to find some place in some of these markets. I have properties that were 100% by Thanksgiving Day. 
and then had 300 person wait lists are still working down where people are like, I want to live there. I will wait and see what happens. There are places where there are not enough beds and that secondary market, those houses for rent, things like that don't work for all students. Or maybe there are a lot of beds, but not every student has a thousand dollars. Not every student can rent the newest and the best and the biggest. And so giving your students an early housing fair gives them the opportunity to look at as many options as possible and find the option that works for them. Because while there's a lot of development, there are definitely markets where the rents are moving at a pace that some students aren't going to be able to afford. And I'm sure you guys get students in your office who have housing and security issues and who really need that support to find the right thing. So kind of with the planning too, when you're looking at that, it may benefit to kind of set something aside that says like these properties work this way. These properties have academic year leases. These properties will have semester leases to make your booklet have, these are the options that are gonna work best. These are all inclusive rates versus these you're gonna to have to pay for things. One of my favorites, I worked in the Arizona state market. They, in their on-campus housing, would do a program called Move Up, Move Out. They would do it in the fall and the spring. And it taught the students on campus what signing a lease meant, what to look for, what it should say. And they would bring in off-campus housing providers to explain it because most of these students had never signed a lease. And their parents are very confused by our installment leases because they are not monthly and there's a lot of fights on that. And brought it in. We weren't allowed to speak about our company or our properties in the market. We had to be very generic. We were not allowed to mention that. But we gave them, here's what this lease means. Here's what you need to look for. Here's what this covers. And I think it's a big benefit to the students because this is their first big purchase for a lot of them. And if they're first generation college students, their parents don't necessarily have the understanding of what they're getting into either. With the housing fairs, I work with some universities where they have one, well, none a year. Thank you, San Diego State, if you're here. <laughs> um, I work with some where they have one or two a year. Most universities, um, I work with a couple where they have one a month. That's overkill. Please stop. <laughs> we don't. We would rather have a very well promoted housing there in the fall or early spring that gets all the students coming to it. You dilute your impact if you do something monthly. People keep putting it off. I have more time. I have more time. So focusing on a specific timeline and really promoting that to the students and pairing it with other events. Some of the best housing fairs I've seen are paired with free food events or music events at um, FAMU in Florida, they do a great job of pairing it with like kind of their out live music outdoors and things. And that really was always beneficial because it brought people to it who might not even realize they need to be looking. Also getting the students engaged. If you give them something where they are entered to win a prize, if they visit X number of booths, so they don't just go to one place and walk away, they get a little stamp, they go visit everyone. That's more beneficial to your partners on campus than the student who just walks to the first one, picks it up and walks out. If I could speak to that for just a second, this is why it's so important because you're dealing with some properties in that market that are 1,000, 1,500 beds. There may even be you know, operators that have three or four properties in that market. And so they're representing three or four marketing budgets, right? I work with a lot of small properties and you know, to have a 250 bed property, the marketing budget that they have, it's a struggle just to get that ownership to agree to you know, the fee to be at the housing fair. Then on top of that, you're dealing with some of them have pretty lavish and <laughs> crazy stuff with their, with their boost. <laughs> if there's anything you can do to you know, help um, spread the love, I guess is the best way to put it. <laughs> One of the best I saw is, and I can't remember if it was IU Bloomington or if it was Kansas, but they actually gave them like a little passport and they had them get stamps at each location and if they fill that and they got entered into win drawings and all the different companies did like 50 or $100 gift cards. So at the end of the day, they drew from all of those names. And the school didn't even have to put up the money. All of those that were participating did. So there's always a benefit there, a way to partner that. And doing it in a place where people are going to walk by. Don't hide it away in a ballroom somewhere with no signage. Outdoors is great if the weather will cooperate because you're gonna get people who just walk by and see free stuff. It's really about promoting it and helping your students because you, I'm sure you're getting calls right now where people are scrambling. I don't like the roommates I signed up with. I can't find anywhere to live. I just got accepted with flat. And so doing these things early can be really beneficial. I was gonna ask, how do you work with the properties who are pressing the gas pedal to slow down so your housing fair is actually beneficial for the student? I think there's a mix. You need to move it early enough. Very few markets do I see a benefit for a second semester housing fair at this point. There might be a few that are slower or have enough beds, but very few. 
those providers are going to fill up anyways. I'm in Columbia, South Carolina. There's a property that every year since they've opened has filled up to 100% the day they open leasing. They're not going to need it. So there might be a few you have to write off, but you working with them and asking, when would you like us to do this? I think you're going to hear September. I really do. What I was going to say is that are we at a point where I agree, I mean, doing anything in February, March, I mean, in every market, every university is different, especially what we're seeing at all the flagship universities for sure. I'm almost wondering if it's now kind of a late spring thing, but it's to, hey, it's to look for the next fall versus, I mean, what what are your thoughts on that? I mean, I think that that may be the way things are going. I'm waiting. I think we're about to see that slight enrollment dip because of the demographics and the age range and the students that are coming into college. There has to be kind of a break-even point. I think things are going to slow the development that's in the pipeline. So I think we might get back to seeing a nice, like, October would be a good time. Like, I liked that month off to relax after moving. I don't, I don't know. But I think there's also going to be, you're going to be doing things way ahead or you're going to be doing things at orientation. You're going to be doing things, yeah, I know. I, I, I know, I agree. I worked orientation, so I agree. I was just going to say, we, we do uh, fall and spring, and for the spring, it's just mostly directly marketed to the you know, 1,500 or so folks we have on our housing wait list. And so I think the tenor of it is really different, that in the fall, it's like, come explore your options, think about whether you're ready to move off campus and still want to work for you. And then in the spring, it's like, we really don't have room for you, here's your options. And I think that's one thing that's become a challenge for us. I know there's a couple markets where we have people who don't find out if they get on-campus housing until March or April or May, and then the off-campus is full. We have a property opening in January. I have students that are getting Airbnbs for the first semester because there's nowhere for them to live at this point because they're there's like nothing left in that market. There is a couple properties that no one feels some mini dorms owned by some local landlords that I would not put my dog in. So that's actually part of my question about like the question of those who are stepping on the gas. I don't see us feasibly moving our process into the fall anytime soon. So that's going to continue to be an issue and, and not, you know, we can do all the education we can to students about considering their options. But I mean, it's not like we can tell folks like, no, stop, don't start leasing until November. Like they're not going to that. So, and, and that's, just, I, I don't know what the answer is. I really, I don't know. Chances are you, you probably wouldn't be capturing those students to live on campus again for another year anyway. Mm-hmm. So, if a student is making a decision during the first semester, I, I think it's one of two reasons. One, they're worried that they're not going to get housing and they want to make sure they get an off campus spot. Or two, things fill up so quickly that if they don't do it now, then. Well, and then we're trying to encourage, like, thing. think about if you that's feel like right you're ready, yeah. go ahead and clamp on it. But so either it's not going to be available, or, or, or I, I don't know. The second point I wanted to make was they just want to get it done and they want to not have to worry about it. That was the second point. I was going to say, I agree, it's going to be just to back it up with the data. There is going to be sort of this, you mentioned, like this asymptotic trend or this leveling off that you'll end up seeing as it relates to kind of pre lease trends across that, you know, October to February timeframe upon which you see kind of a largest spike in pre lease. But it's not even, you know, kind of as I alluded to earlier, it's not even that you're traversing that, you know, or moving past that 50% pre-lease marker in February. It's that by the end of February, you're at 58, 59% at this point. And we do f- see that, although it's going to level off, it's not going to jump 8, 10% next year. We do see it where you're probably going to end up hitting 65% pre-lease by February of next year. So if that's the case, these off-campus properties are, are not going to slow down because they're going to be out there trying to be competitive to ensure that they're at that, at that 100%, you know, the moment, you know, leasing opens up for that basically that year. It's crazy. When I was trained initially, when I started working, the goal was to be 100% on move-in day. That meant you got all the rent growth you could get, you got all of this. And now I see companies celebrating, this property was full on October 31st. And I'm like, that was not something to celebrate when I started. And I don't know if that's something that we as an industry need to look into, is that are we pushing things too far, too fast? I mean, the rate rate growth is there. So, I mean, that's not it. But, you know, we just did 78 lease replacements for fall for one property that's only 713 beds because people signed so early and then decided to go to another school. Like the amount of replacements we're doing with these early lease signing is also interesting. And the rate growth is tying directly into that where we ran a study just within our internal data to take a look at you know are folks missing out on an opportunity to increase rate growth even further as a result of trying to push leasing too soon into the leasing cycle and our conclusions came back is that's not the case people are still capitalizing on seven eight ten whatever percent rate growth in addition to leasing up super soon so just because you're you know skyrocketing your rates doesn't mean you're going to slow down whatsoever as it relates to your pre-leasing i just remember when three percent was the goal <laughs> <laughs> two questions here i'm not sure who raised their hand first but 
Go for it. So I appreciate all the information and having worked on both sides of the fence, I see both sides, but I think there's a crucial point that we're missing here is that pretty much everyone in this room is employed by the university and their housing comes first. So when you're advocating have all these housing fairs in September, October, that's really going to cause conflict because they're going to see that as competition for the housing on campus. And this my second point to that is if you're pushing and all these markets are so full, believe me, been there, done that, pressure to be, I got it. But if you're doing that, and we're pushing September and October, students' lives change. Uh, is the industry going to back off on holding them to their leases for the following And I would say... Is that going to change? I would say, from what I'm seeing in those markets where they're having to lease that early, there's still plenty of demand that, you know, something changes in spring semester or even over the summer. There's, I mean, you said you had a waiting list at one property of 300 people on it. I mean... The markets that are having that type of fortune, I guess, uh, or luck, I don't know, but I haven't seen that to be a problem. Yeah, I was gonna say those very early markets, I haven't seen, unless someone waits until moving day to let us know, I haven't so seen that. So there's no penalty for the students? We do have relapse oh, that's, that's but they're point. generally paid by the new person moving in in our case because they're looking for something, so. And I think the other thing too is, in most cases in those markets that are very early, we're not competing with campus. Campus is going to fill up and be pushing students off. There's schools that I've seen that are telling people, we need you to go somewhere else. We don't have room for you. We have a sophomore live-on requirement and we can't even house all of them. And we're now saying, is anyone willing to be let out of their contracts? So is that I, the case in your, in your mark? What mark are you? Pen. Pen. Okay. Yeah. yeah. Um, so we're, I think we're having to lease out because we're doing renovations, but I cannot, God forbid, I should try to even have a housing fair between March, but in in my own unique, every university is unique, the influx of who comes to our housing for the income grad students, because we have a huge grad population. The undergrads are the two-year requirement, they know what to get, so yeah. it's different. But again, both sides of the fence, I understand, but we are trying to teach the students not to sign leases in October, because life changes, and nobody in my market's letting them out of their lease if they do that. So that's a huge burden to those students to either find someone to fill it or pay a penalty or some companies, there is no penalty. You sign a 12-month lease, you're responsible for the whole lease. So you're hearing from your students that they're feeling pressure. My students feel extreme to pressure. Sign to sign a lease now because you're worried. Yeah, I'm in Philly too, and I have similar experience. I think broadly I would say in the urban location where you're competing for the yeah, young professional market as well. Students mark in apartments, not in off-campus resident residence hall situation. Right. I don't have, I don't feel a desire to run a, a housing fair because I have a little bit of an occupancy problem in traditional residence halls. But my apartment sell up just as fast as y'all do, so I'm good, right? <laughs> and to me, the folks who come to my fairs are the bad actors who aren't fully occupied, right? The, the good partners don't need the fair either yeah. in, in an urban market. They get filled. My question was going to be, you guys talk about the demographic leveling off. In enrollment management circles, that is not the term we use. We use enrollment cliff. And so when you're talking I'm about developing these programs, <laughs> uh, I, I mean, my enrollment management tell me that it's time to be realists, right? And so I know this is not going to be a problem for the big five at like school. I know this is not going to be a problem for Ivy League plus types, right? I come from a mid-sized selective institution. Uh, we're probably going to be okay in terms of just, we are likely to level off. Yeah. There are a lot of mid-sized state schools, small private schools in urban, rural, suburban settings that are not. Oh, right? I see. I, I, I have a peer coming at an AVP level to my institution, coming from a school that closed this year, and they were a VP, right? I have crazy recruitment at the senior level because folks are looking for base. It feels like tech, right? And so when you're talking about the market, is so the college systems are fascinating to me in terms of projections because is there any discussion in your circles about the actual demographics that are projected over the next year? It is for me. And let, let, me, let me tell you that I, I read something that someone put on LinkedIn this past week that was, I think it was actually something that was in Student Housing Business Magazine, but it gave an enrollment projection. And if, you know, Student Housing Business Magazine is going to, you know, it's, it's a fluff piece, right? They're trying to make the market seem, you know, very strong. The projected enrollment numbers were completely off 
from a national standpoint. We're going from like 15.2 to 17 billion, you know, by, by 2030. I don't know where, and Lenny and I were just talking about this, unless if there is some, the Department of Education has got something in the back of their pocket yeah, for international students. <laughs> but we don't know about. Yeah. Absolutely, sure. I, I, don't, I don't know where they national students. There we yeah. go. And they, that article had mentioned something, had referenced something old that U.S. Department of Education had come out with a, an updated one, and I think it was, they pulled it down to like 16.7 by 2031. I feel like, I don't know if it's the universities or the agents or what, but I don't feel like something happened over the pandemic where it has not picked back up yet when it comes to international recruitment. And that's the only place that, that those numbers are going to bounce back from. And I think that's very university specific. I went to Central Michigan. I don't know if anyone has any connection to there, but the enrollment there has been a cliff since my graduation day. And I see those schools being the struggle spot. And those are markets where the university has halls offline. The off-campus sector has buildings that are not being used because there are not physically enough people to fill that. I went there at the time that there was triple occupancy in the residence halls when I was living there. There was quadruple occupancy until people dropped out. They were hoping for people to drop out to fill beds. So I think the tertiary schools, the secondary schools, I think the flagships are probably going to be fine. They're probably going to continue to get the students, but I do think there'll be more schools closing to that point. I do think that that's not the beginning. I think at Interface, I don't know who was at Interface, I think they talked about that a little bit. You know, there will be more tertiary schools closing because there's just not a way, or being absorbed into other schools. So you all enter sort of secondary markets, is that a conversation? Like, I'm not talking about SEC, ACC, Big Ten, you know, but if you get into a, a, a Central Michigan, but just keep it to the drum, like, are you also not pursuing those, that kind of partnerships anymore, or is it a different risk discussion, or? On campus or off? Off. So the reason we're not seeing an uptick to pre-pandemic levels in on-campus P3s is because the university knows what's going on with grad. And I, I, I dare, I'm employed by a developer, but I dare say that the developers are looking at things differently and interpreting numbers differently than our on-campus partners are. And so that's why you see increased development off-campus, either stabilized or decreased development on. So I'm, I'm, I'm not sure what the difference is. I'd love to take them out and we'll manage with people because they're, they're really down in the dumps, you know? And if you build it, they will come, does not work. Yeah, okay. no, that's not a thing. So, like, and the other point I wanted to make is community colleges, too. So we're, we're, we have not rebounded with international student enrollment, but we've seen dramatic decreases in enrollment at community colleges. And Graystar has partnered with at least one to provide new housing. And there are other community colleges that are looking to develop, but they're wondering if that makes sense with decreased enrollment there as well. Gainesville or Tallahassee, Florida. <laughs> So I'm here at Tech. Um, we do not expect any decrease in enrollment at all, ever. <laughs> we, just, we just keep going up. I, I want to go back to this comment about properties offering terms or the ability for people to get out of their leases and that sort of thing. And so Kate's also here and shoot the I'm also responsible for our on-campus housing and assignments and occupancy management. But our students, I think part of the education piece is really important, but how do we encourage and do properties, will they provide more information to students up front and on their websites about things like, here are your options if you sign a lease by this state. Like, I mean, we provide all of that information and very clear, you know, we're super transparent about here's when you get penalized and here's blah, blah, blah. But off-campus properties barely have like anything on their website. It's just pictures, you know, so you have to call. And I think that's where we really have struggled. I think that's part of like doing programs like the move out, move out, move out, move out thing that I've seen before that helps, but also talking to your partners and saying, this is what we would like to see. I mean, that's why we added a lot of things to our facts page at a lot of our properties is because our university partners are saying, this is the question we're getting a lot. We're getting questions about what properties allow pets, what properties will do academic year leases, what if I sign a lease and my visa gets denied? So we provided that information directly on our website because that was, especially with the international timeline and trying to communicate with them. But 
let them know what you want to see. Most of your partners are going to, your good partners are going to be willing to make some adjustments or add some information. I think it's, most of us manage our websites through our companies, at least on the bigger side, and it's not that difficult for us to add a fax page or add another little piece of information that's university specific. Yeah, and I would, I would impress upon those of you that people are killing for saying this. <laughs> the National Apartment Association came out with a standardized lease for student well a version of their standardized lease for student housing. And what is great about that is every judge in the country knows what that lease states. And you know, I can tell you there's, because I've worked on it a lot this past year, you know, in your shoes, being able to go to a property and asking to use the National Park, then they get a student housing lease. I think it probably give you a little bit more comfort in saying, having conversations with students of, hey, this is exactly where this is at in your lease. Because it's going to be the same pretty much no matter what state you're in. I think the big thing too is like any property management, property manager, individual property should be willing to give a copy of the lease before they have to sign it so that they can look it over. If they're not willing to do that, that's a huge red flag to me on a personal level. So, I mean, I make sure our staffs are very well aware. There is a sample lease that you can give out to anyone or you can fill one out for them that they can see that's, you know, says sample on it that lets them see it, that they, their parents, whoever they want to look over it can, because there are going to be questions. And yes, the students speed through it. We can see how many seconds they spend per page. Mm -hmm. And yeah. I am terrified some days um, for the, our future, so. But I think also, I don't think across any of our markets that we do business in that we've actually had the university reach out to us and say, hey, can you please communicate this better to our students? So that's the other thing, reach out. But you're telling us a perfect person because I can get that out. <laughs> yeah, so I might class tomorrow, and I've done that on a couple of other different things. So I'm hoping I can do it, and through college events too. But yeah, I think there's um, there's more partnership to be had in that in those conversations. Yeah. I was just gonna real quick in terms of promoting fairs, make sure you are sending it to every parent if you're any parent channel you can. That is actually for us has been a big productive, but also for anybody else who is lucky, unlucky enough to also be on a 1500 person wait list in a massive like off campus market, promoting it like on your campus calendar in a way that we're able to get it so it goes out through the Midtown Association and we get more properties who pop up and like, hey, we have spaces for students and it has actually helped us add to the inventory on our college pad state. And I have to say for me, it's nice to be able to just be like, oh great, here, let me pass you off to Taylor. But by promoting it in that way actually helped us pull in more properties to be part of our college pads page and that helped us actually like alleviate some of the wait lists as well. So just knowing that the promotion of the fair is just a little bit about property managers. It was really valuable. I was gonna say, and that made me think back to you. I think that that's kind of the story right now too. There are the markets where the private sector is oh, yeah. number one, your best friend, because you can't house these people and they're not gonna come to school if they can't find housing. Mm -hmm. But there's gotta be a way to find a way to market the university properties too without it being us against them because there are students who are never going to be willing to live on campus or don't want to live on campus who will go to doctors and get doctor's notes to get out of on campus living i've realized and then there are the ones that will so i think there's got to be a way of it being making sure people weigh their options and if they are required to live on campus we're not going to try and take them away we don't do dorm buyouts i know i've seen companies do that but that's not good business practice we have a partnership with the university we're not going to do this to help them get out of dorms things like that i've seen that in the past but I don't think anyone's doing that anymore. I would hope not, because that's not the kind of relationships we want to have. So I can just add really quickly, one of the things we've done to help with that at our off-campus living fairs, we invite our on-campus housing to that fair. Yes. So students have the ability to go and say, okay, I don't, my live on requirement is up. I can now go and engage, you know, diff have a different conversation yeah, we do the same. with yeah. them. Mm -hmm. And we've also expanded our to be also an off-campus resource there. So we invite shelters, other properties, SNAP benefits, so students can come and learn about SNAP benefits. So they're getting the whole correct gamut at that fair. So I, I, I get all of that. And I just want to say to say to promote that you should have your housing fairs in September and October. It's a very blanket statement and doesn't work for everybody. Yeah, and that's, yeah, absolutely. I, that's what I said when I started. I said, especially in the markets that are moving fast, I think there's also places where there are people looking for housing right now and there's still lots of options out there. We have markets that are like that. It's important to note too, the students, especially if they have friends that go to that, I think that's the push too. There are properties and markets where there's a lot of housing available, but their friend goes to UT Knoxville and they think they need to sign a lease in September, even though they're in a market that's going to have 5,000 beds left at this point in the season. And I can echo that for Millageville because 
got a lot of students there that you know are very tied into what's happening in Athens and we saw a lot of that at the beginning of the season beginning of fall I should say where folks were felt like they had to sign a lease immediately well to this panel I appreciate you guys taking out of the busy work schedules going into turn and and being here and again Lenny thanks for stepping in for Charlotte and I think you did a great job Well, again, thanks to College Pads for giving myself and each of these panelists an opportunity to share our perspectives with their clients. There were some great relationships that were made from the event, and I look forward to continuing those conversations for sure. So a couple of quick announcements, and I can't believe I'm saying this, but are you ready for the fall 24 lease up? (laughs) Of course, as we discussed in that discussion it's getting earlier and earlier. And, you know, we've discussed it all of this past leasing season and everyone is just, they're getting started now. They were getting started before turn. So we are hosting a webinar on Wednesday, September 6th at 2 p.m. Eastern with a group of panelists who have been planning the rollout of their marketing and leasing strategies for this upcoming leasing season. This is something you don't want to miss, especially if you're a general manager or if you work on a portfolio marketing and leasing type of position. This is something that that's really catering specifically towards you. And so to get more information on that, you can go to studenthousinginsight.com and go to our events tab and you'll see a place there that you can register for that. So make sure you go check that out. Also, our next shop talk is on Thursday, September 14th at 1 p.m. You can register for that at shoptalk.info. Again, that's shoptalk.info. Well, that does it for this episode. Thanks so much for listening. And if I brought you any value, make sure that you tell your colleagues about this podcast. I think they can get a lot of value out of it as well. Have a great day and we'll talk to you soon.